Well, good evening. It's a real joy to be here this evening with you and really looking forward to the opportunity to share God's Word. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John 14. I want to do three uh, short readings from John's Gospel. Um, My theme uh, for the next uh, three sessions that I have with you, if I got my calendar correct, it will be tonight and then Sunday night and then next Wednesday night. Uh, I want to do a small mini-series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the neglected person of the Godhead. So John 14, to begin with, just uh, three short readings, John 14, verse 15, down to verse 18, the Lord Jesus preparing his disciples for uh, his absence, and he says in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. And then verse 25 and 26, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And now chapter 15 for the final uh, reading, verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And again, we believe God will bless the public reading of his precious word to us this evening. Well, this is how the series is going to go. I want to think tonight particularly about the Spirit's significance. Uh, we mentioned, I mentioned the neglected person of the Godhead. I want to th- think with you about some of the reasons why he's neglected uh, amongst us. And then we want to think about his significance. And then, uh, Lord willing, uh, on Sunday night, we want to think about the Spirit's sensitivity. Uh, how he can be grieved, how he can be quenched, how he can be resisted, how he can be despised. So we want to think about the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, next Wednesday evening, if the rapture hasn't occurred before then, we'll talk about the Spirit's symbols. Okay, So that's where we're headed. Uh, of course, if the Spirit directs otherwise, we may not go that way either. So we want to be sensitive to him. Uh, but uh, I want to begin by just giving some quotes Um, from different people about the issue of the Holy Spirit. This one is from a New Zealander called H.C. Hewlett. Uh, He was an assembly preacher in New Zealand, wrote a tremendous book uh, called Our Glorious Lord, but he also wrote a book on the personal work of the Holy Spirit, and this is what he says. He says, uh, speaking of assembly testimony, he says, how much of our poverty as believers, of our weakness in testimony... And of our lack of rejoicing is due to our slowness to appreciate the worth of the person and of the ministry of the holy indweller. And so he's observing something. that There's sometimes a lack of rejoicing amongst us. Uh, Sometimes there's weakness in our testimony, so on and so forth. And he says that he believes that part of the reason is because of the Holy Spirit. Let me also read from another New Zealander. This is not New Zealand night. It just uh, just so happens that these quotes are all from New Zealanders. This is uh, J. Oswald Sanders, 
who was the director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship. It used to be China Inland Mission, but when they got kicked out of China, it was no longer relevant to be called China Inland Mission. So they called themselves OMF. And he uh, followed in the footsteps of Hudson Taylor, uh, of uh, D.E. Host, and a few other great men. Uh, this is what he says. One of the most subtle tactics adopted by the enemy to paralyze the church has been to make Christians afraid of the Holy Spirit. He has driven groups of earnest believers to adopt extreme positions on the right and the left. He laughs as he sees neither group in complete enjoyment of the power and fullness the Spirit delights to bestow. Uh, <clears throat> some have suggested that people with no fire warn us about people with false fire. And so ultimately, if you have no fire and false fire, then there's no real fire anywhere, is there? And we don't want that. Uh, <clears throat> so um, it, he also mentions it's a tragedy that the doctrine which is intended to produce the unity of the spirit becomes the fruitful source of disunity. The enemy is very clever, isn't he? Yeah? I mean... what? What is the Holy Spirit meant to do? Promote unity amongst the people of God. And the very doctrine of the person and work of the Holy Spirit has been a source of disunity. Well, um, we want to recognize that we're not the only ones to have neglected him. He's been neglected throughout church history. Uh, some uh, Back in 325, there was a church council, the Council of Nicaea, of which uh, part of it was the Nicaean Creed. And the purpose of the Nicene Creed was that there was a man called Arius, uh, founder of a movement called Arianism. And uh, basically, he taught that uh, the Spirit was the extended energy of God uh, and um, was not divine uh, and uh, just was the energy that came out of God. And of course, the Arians uh, come visiting your doors quite frequently on Saturdays. They're alive and well. Uh, they're the Jehovah's false witnesses. The Arianism is still around. Uh, also, uh, in the 1600s, there was a man called Sicinius. Uh, I, love the, I love church history because I love names, and there's some great names, isn't there? What about this Faustus Sicinius? Uh, oh, I'm glad that I, I, my kids all got named depending on what I was studying. I'm glad I wasn't studying church history when I named my kids because who knows what they'd have been called. Faustus Sicinius, 1539 to 1604 from Sassini, from Siena in Italy. And he said the spirit is an it. Uh, he is, uh, an, uh, sorry, is not in it, nor is he an attribute of God. Uh, he basically De described again same idea that he's just the force that comes out from God so clearly there's been neglect throughout the history of the church why is he neglected am amongst us let me make some suggestions of why the Holy Spirit is neglected amongst us part of it is what I call reaction reactionary theology we see the charismatic movement and there's a lot of things that happen in the charismatic movement that are bizarre. And so what we do is we don't want to be associated with that 
And so the pendulum swings to the other extreme. And I can confess to this. When I was newly saved back in 1981, uh, the church that I was involved in, uh, there were some people went away for a weekend retreat, supposedly had an experience, uh, spoke in gobbledygooch. I won't say it was languages because it was definitely not languages. But they came, uh, well, they didn't even come back to our church. Some of them were Sunday school teachers. They just left. Uh, but they came back for us because my wife and I were the youngest Christians. And they like to as we go after untaught believers. And so they would take us along to different meetings. And I remember being in meetings where people were falling all over the place. Uh, the hairs were standing on the back of my neck. It was so strange, the things that were going on. And, and I didn't know much about the Bible, but I did know this much. I remember reading, as I read through the New Testament for the first time, I remembered this little phrase that stuck in my mind, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And I said to my wife, come on, we're going out of here. This is not for us. But I have to confess that for the following 30 years, I have lived with a bias against the Holy Spirit. In fact, most of the ministry that I've heard on the Holy Spirit in the last 30 years is on what we do not believe about the Holy Spirit. Right? It's all about, well, we're not this. Well, can I ask you, what are we? What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? What relationship does he have to our lives and our walk? That's the question we need to be asking. And so what I'd like to do, uh, I mean, again, I'm three messages. Uh, what do you expect? This, this is a whole semester in a seminary, you know, kind of the person work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to condense it into three. And there's a lot of things we're not going to touch. But I want to focus particularly on the positive ministry of the Holy Spirit, particularly in the believer's life. So we're saying that part of the reason he's neglected is we've reacted against charismatic error. Another reason that he's neglected is because the Holy Spirit himself doesn't draw attention to himself. John 16, verse 13, uh, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And here it is. He shall not speak of himself but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And so the emphasis here is this, that the Holy Spirit's job really is to focus the Christian's attention on the Lord Jesus. Uh, I've just uh, been doing a study on uh, Colossians and comparing it with Ephesians. And in Ephesians, you have 12 references to the Holy Spirit. In Colossians, you only have one. And I'm thinking, like, why is that? Because, you know, Colossians and Ephesians, what is it? Something like 75% of Colossians is in Ephesians. Very great similarities. But here's a big dissimilarity. 12 references, one reference. And the reason is the person of Christ is under attack in Colossae. And so the Holy Spirit's energy is directed to the person of Christ. And it's so full of the Lord Jesus, he wants to get our attention back on him and focus correctly on him. However, we said uh, he doesn't speak of himself but he does speak for himself. And there's a big difference between not speaking of himself, but speaking for himself. Let me show you some examples. Acts 13. Just want you to see uh, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit, his, what I say, presidency in the Holy Church, in the early church, in directing them. So it says, uh, this is the church in Antioch, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, 
The Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Verse 4, so they being sent by the Holy Ghost departed unto Seleucia. So he's not speaking of himself, but he's certainly making his will known, isn't he? In the assembly, he is speaking for himself. Acts 15, uh, we studied this on Monday night, so we got some experts in the room here. Uh, but it says in 1528, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And the idea is this, that as they deliberated over the question of do Gentile converts need to be circumcised, they acknowledged that even though Peter spoke and James spoke, the person who was really doing the talking was the Spirit of God. And so they said, seemed good to the Holy Ghost, and then they said, and to us, as if, you know, we're kind of junior partners in this. And whatever he says, that's good, right? He's speaking. Of course, the book of Revelation, seven churches, you're all experts on that after these last two Sundays or whatever it is. But what is it, what's the refrain that runs through each of the letters to the seven churches? He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the who? The Spirit saith to the churches. And again, we've got to ask ourselves, are we listening here at Claremont Bible Chapel to what the Spirit of God wants to say to us? That's a good question, isn't it? Are we individually listening to what the Spirit would say to us? So all we're saying is we, we, don't, want to doubt, we don't want to overplay the Holy Spirit because He wants to focus our attention on Christ, but we don't want to under estimate the value and significance of the Holy Spirit because as you look at the book of Acts, what you find is that in 28 chapters, the person of the Holy Spirit is mentioned 50 times. That is not incidental, that's essential. And dare I say it, I'm just being honest with you, as I look at the churches that we call assemblies or whatever you want to call them, New Testament gatherings of saints, we have a strong adherence to New Testament principles, but we are desperately lacking New Testament power. There's a powerlessness in many of our gatherings. The preaching lacks power. We're not sensing the presence of God in a real way in our preaching meetings. And it almost seems like we've so emphasized the principles that we've forgotten the aspect of New Testament power. And part of the reason for that is because, well, that's what charismatics talk about. We don't want to talk about that. Well, no, no, no. We need New Testament power, don't we? Could I say this? New Testament principles without New Testament power can become cold and dull and lifeless. So, we want to think about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And we want to begin by thinking about his personality. Because there are those that say he's an it, or he's uh, basically just like a force, like the, because the symbolism almost plays into that, you know, things like wind and fire. So people often take away from the, per, the true personality of the Holy Spirit, and they also uh, deny the deity of the Holy Spirit. So we want to tonight, kind of foundational, we want to just deal with the foundation of who this person is and why we can't afford to neglect him. So first of all, that he is a person. What is, is it that defines personality? How do you know what a person is? How do you say, well, this is a person. What makes a person a person? Well, a person has intellect, emotion, 
and will. By the way, I believe God wants to affect through the preaching of the word of God the entire person, intellect, emotion, and will. Sometimes we like to downplay emotion, don't we? God wants to touch your heart as well as your brain. Now, he wants to touch your brain. He wants to inform your intellect. He wants to warm your heart, and he wants to affect your will, all three, right? And our preaching should aim at all three. A lot of our preaching, very heady, very intellectual, but it doesn't actually reach the heart, and we walk away fundamentally unchanged, heads full of information, walking Bible dictionaries, but no life change because it never actually moved the heart, warmed the heart, or engaged the will. The Holy Spirit has a massive intellect. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We want to just prove that he is a real person, that he does have intellect, and actually he has an amazing intellect. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. It says, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, Yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now, I have to be honest with you. I think I mentioned some of you were at Rise Up that I made a, part of my objectives this year is to read through Schaeffer's Systematic Theology, eight volumes. Part of it is I want to have a bigger view of God. I'm working my way through volume one, and I have to say that Theology at times stretches my intellect. There's times when I just feel like I believe that God is one God who eternally existed in three persons. But do I fully grasp all the significance of that? There's an aspect of which I, there's, there's, there's a mystery dimension to it, isn't there? I can hardly get my head around it. One person said this, that if God was small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. And there's an aspect of when you're studying God, you're left kind of with a sense of wonder. You can't fully wrap your mind around him. But the Holy Spirit doesn't have a problem. He searches the deep things of God. Yeah, he knows the deep things of God, doesn't he? Because he has an intellect that's God-sized, partly because he is God. But he has intellect. He can understand. He can grasp, search out, and know the deep things of God. Whereas you and I sometimes struggle with the deep things of God. He also has emotion. Ephesians 4, and this is a verse that we will look at in more detail uh, on Sunday night in the will of the Lord, but I want to just mention just a simple thing here. Uh, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. And so uh, grief is an emotion. Uh, You cannot grieve a influence only a person, and that person with whom you are intimate and who uh, loves you, only that kind of person can be grieved, right? So in a very real sense, uh, and here's the staggering thought. Isn't this a staggering thought? That you and I can actually affect the emotions of God. You ever thought about that? 
I mean, look at the psalmist. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him? You know, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers. God, it says God humbles himself to look down on the heavens and the earth. And yet, somehow my conduct can actually affect the emotions of God the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? But he, not only has he intellect, he has emotion, he has will. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, again speaking of this blessed person, and we're looking at the fact that he has a will, and it says concerning the distribution of the gifts of the Spirit, it says, all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally or individually as he will. And so when it came to the gift or gifts that you have as a believer given to you by the Spirit of God, it wasn't really up to you what gift you got. They were given sovereignly by the will of the Holy Spirit. So he has a will, right? He exercised his will in determining what gifts you or I should have. So... His intellect, his emotion, his will, uh, he, of course, is referred to in terms of personal pronouns. Even though the word spirit is actually a gender-neutral word, right? Neither male nor female. It's, it's just a gender-neutral word. And yet, he is referred to frequently in the New Testament as when he, personal masculine pronoun. So he's a real person. And personal pronouns tell us that. Of course, we've already saw that he speaks. Uh, he definitely intervenes in the direction of the servants of God. Uh, and again, they're sensitive to his direction, Acts 16. Uh, we'll see that, verse uh, 6. Now, when they had gone through the, uh, throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And so clearly, this person has quite an influence on the direction of the servants of God. You cannot go into Asia right now. And then, interestingly enough, later on, they could go into Asia, but right now he says, no. Not only is he giving direction as where they go, but when they go where they go. Right, So he's very involved um, in these things. Um, uh, he, he obviously comforts. Uh, we read those verses about when the comforter shall come. Uh, he can be lied to uh, in Acts chapter 5. This is a critical verse when we come not only to the personality, uh, but also to the deity of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we'll kill both uh, both of them with one verse uh, or two verses. Verse 3 of Acts 5, uh, Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? By the way, you can't lie to the wind, right? It has to be a person. You, lying is the attempt to deceive a real person. Right? Yeah, you've lied to the Holy Ghost in, to keep back part of the price of the land. While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived these things in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. So this is not just a person, but he is a divine person. Uh, he also is a person that prays. 
Romans 8. We often think about the Lord Jesus, that he, in his high priestly ministry for us, ever lives to make intercession for us. But I'm not sure that we think as much about the Holy Spirit in that context. And Romans 8, verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. And the context here is our weaknesses in prayer. Is that, do you feel any weakness in prayer? Well, I want to tell you, if I, feel, if I had to be honest with you, I would say my weakest area is prayer. I struggle with that. But he has said that he will help us in our weaknesses. And he says, the Spirit helps us in our infirmities. And he says, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Have you ever been at that place where you're just so overwhelmed, you don't even know how to form the words? Have you ever been there? You're just kind of groaning. You know, your heart is just aching. You want, you want to say something. You don't know what, what to say. And, and it says that at that point... When we're in that plight, the Spirit, and again, King James, love it, but it's wrong here, itself, the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And it's wonderful, isn't it, that the Spirit is our helper in prayer, and when we don't know what to pray, he intercedes for us. Do you think that God is for us tonight? Right? <laughs> The Holy, the Holy Spirit interceding for us. We've got the Lord Jesus standing at God's right hand interceding. God is for us. Isn't that good to know tonight that God is for us? The world may be against you, but God is for you. I think that's encouraging. So, he certainly acts as a person. Now, I want to think a little bit about uh, the evidence for his deity. The evidence for his deity. And um, what makes God God? Well, one of the things that makes God God is that God has certain attributes that you and I do not have. All right? What about this one? Omnipresence. God can be everywhere present at the same time. Now, sometimes we would love to be in more than one places at one time. Like, I'd love to be home with my wife right now, but I'm also glad I'm here. And I'd like to be in both places at the same time. And I'd like to be in Norway because my, uh, my daughter-in-law just gave birth this time last week to a new baby. And I'd like to be there, just kind of being there for them. And what is a lot of places I'd like to be? But I'm here. And I'm not in those other places. My, my heart might desire to be there, but I'm not there. Well, look at Psalm 139, speaking of the Spirit of God sharing what we call attributes of divine personage, the attributes of God. Verse 7, whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. The psalmist recognized, where can I flee from your spirit? That's both comforting and scary at the same time, isn't it? When you're on your own, in a tight spot, you're not on your own. <laughs> the Spirit of God is there. But when you're on your own and you think nobody else is watching, well, you're not on your own. <laughs> the Spirit of God is there as well. So yeah, you've got both sides. And you say you can't have it both ways. Well, you can. <laughs> in this case, it's both wonderfully comforting and also scary. 
Another aspect of God is omniscience, knowing everything. And of course, we already said that the Spirit searches, 1 Corinthians 2, the deep things of God and He knows them. So if He knows everything God knows, then He's omniscient. Right? Eternal, eternality, no beginning and no ending. Hebrews chapter 9, scripture that talks about the Lord Jesus and his suffering on Calvary and the fact that it was done in the energy of the Spirit of God. He says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God. You know, the Lord Jesus was absolutely dependent on the Spirit of God throughout his ministry. And even in his agonizing work on the cross, he says that he offered himself without spot to God. How? Through the eternal Spirit. And of course, we're emphasizing the eternality. And then, of course, there is the fact of the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, of course, uh, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And there's abundant evidence that all power resides in the Spirit of God. Uh, even the, the birth of the Lord Jesus, it says the power of the highest shall come upon thee. And of course, he was conceived, how? By the Holy Spirit. And so certainly uh, there is power there. And here's one that I think is very significant. Look with me, please, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We want to think about the Holy Spirit and his holiness. Of course, um, the uh, phrase holy um, is used of God more frequently connected with the name of God than any other phrase. Uh, for instance, we think of almighty God, we think of all wise God. There's lots of things, words that go with God, but the one word that goes with God more frequently in Scripture than any other word is holy. And of course, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, if you use the King James Version, but it's the Holy Spirit emphasized tremendously. Now I'd like you to look at this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, and it's a very important passage uh, in a sense because it's talking about moral purity. Verse 3, this is the will of God, even your sanctification that you should abstain from fornication. So what God is saying is that, that God's will for the Christian... You know, probably the question I get asked more frequently from young people than any other question is, how do I know the will of God? And I always answer it the same way, that in the Bible, the will of God is moral. It's not geographic. It's not where you are, it's what you are. In everything, give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. And we could go on and on. Uh, when it comes to being filled with the Spirit, uh, we often start in, be ye filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. But verse 17 says, understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he describes what the will of the Lord is. It's for you to be a Spirit-filled Christian. Right? So the will of the Lord is moral. And so understand what the will of the Lord is. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. God wants you, God, God wants, wants me to be holy. 
And he recognizes one of the areas that could be a major threat to your holiness and my holiness is sexual immorality. Uh, the pagan world was sex mad, basically. Even the worship, the temples, everything was wrapped around it. It's, like, it's just like the 21st century, right? We think that our struggles are unique. Listen, we're not going through anything that the first century church didn't go through. You say, well, it's so easy. You got, you just, you know, you got the internet. Well, worship in those days was connected with temple prostitution and was seen to be normal. So it was easy for them. And so he says, God's will for you is for you to be sanctified, for you to be holy, that you should abstain from, uh, from fornication or sexual immorality. And then I want you to look at verse 8. Having given this teaching, and we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but he's giving teaching on this very important issue. And then he says uh, in verse 8, basically, if you, do, if you have a problem with this teaching, this is what he says. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God. And then notice what he says. Who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Do you get that? What he's saying is, you, you persist in this sin, and you're saying, I despise you, God. Well, that's strong, isn't it? Why are, you, why are you despising God? Because he has given us his Holy Spirit, so what you do, you include him with you when you do it. Because he lives within you. You're not your own. You, you know, you can't just do what you want anymore. Whatever you do, he's involved with it. And you're despising your indwelling heavenly guest. You know, it's an amazing thing. And, um, <clears throat> but I would say, partly because of reacting to charismatic teaching and the climate of the last 30 years, but one of the things that is very rude is to ignore guests. I stay in people's houses all the time. It would be very difficult if I was staying with somebody for, say, two weeks or something like that, and they basically completely ignored me. Two weeks, it seemed like a lifetime, right? Well, for 30 years plus, I've had a guest an indwelling, heavenly guest living in me. How much attention have I paid to this indwelling, heavenly guest? Do I ignore him? That's a, that's a sobering question because especially in the biblical culture, remember in the, in the biblical culture how important hospitality was? You, you remember, you remember in, even back in, in Sodom, remember what, what Lot wanted to do with his daughters because he didn't want his guests to be thrown out to the, the perverted men of the city. I mean, there's more examples of that, isn't there? In other words, your, your guest was so important and, and to ignore them was a very serious thing. Beloved, are we ignoring our indwelling heavenly guests? Can I ask you that? How much have you been involved in your personal relationship with the Spirit of God? Let me just read you another verse. 2 Corinthians 13. Very important scripture. Uh, we don't think too much about it. It's just one of these uh, basically um, closing uh, statements uh, at the end of a letter but he says something very interesting in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 13. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Can I ask you, do you understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, yes. Right? Wonderful grace of Jesus. Great. We love that kind of stuff, don't we? What about the love of God? Is, is that the love of God is greater far? I mean, all these hymns are about it, right? But what about the next one? The communion. What does communion mean? Koinonia. Fellowship. How's your fellowship? The fellowship of the Holy Ghost. Do you know what that means? <laughs> is there a sensitivity? Is there, I mean, we're supposed to be led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit. We're supposed to display the fruit of the Spirit. There's got to be some communication there somewhere. Some direction there. And so, again, I'm just throwing these things out because I think they're areas of neglect for us. Of course, there's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Can I just say that um, you can't blaspheme anybody but divine persons. You can't blaspheme me, right? Blasphemy is speaking ill of divine persons. So the very fact that there's a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is evidence that he's God, isn't it? Um, your, uh, the local church in 1 Corinthians 3.16 is called the temple of God. And the Holy Spirit dwelleth in you, he says. And again, uh, who dwells in temples? God, supposedly, right? And so the idea is that, wow, my body is the temple of the Holy Yes, it is. And so is yours. And so clearly, uh, he is a divine person. When you think about uh, the Holy Spirit, we've already mentioned that he's, he's a person, and we've shown that by having the attributes of God and being clearly called God, being linked with the other persons of the Trinity and the baptism of the Lord Jesus, uh, even uh, the Lord Jesus, uh, you remember the, you've got all three persons there, the Father speaking, the Spirit like a dove descending on the Lord Jesus, and of course then you've got the Lord Jesus there. You've got the baptismal formula in Matthew 28, baptize them in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So clearly tied together with the three persons of the Godhead. And so clearly he is a person, clearly he's God. What does he bring to the life of a local assembly? Let's look at some scriptures. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6. And this, all I'm trying to say to us tonight, and this is kind of preliminary, so you've got you to take it that way, step by step. We're just kind of uh, working some principles through. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6, it, it says, who also made us able ministers of the New Testament, of the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. You want an assembly that has life? Amen. Well, it has to be a, an assembly where we know something about the work of the Holy Spirit, right? The letter, you know, and you see this when there's this kind of hard legalism. What does it do? It stifles, it kills, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We need the Spirit of God in our assemblies uh, as we come to remember the Lord. I hope that our, our understanding is that the Spirit is the one that leads us in our appreciation of Christ. We need Him there. We need Him in the preaching of the Word of God, don't we? We want Spirit-empowered preachers in the pulpit. Amen. Beloved, we need the Spirit of God in our assembly. And, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, is life. Romans 5.5 5. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's love. Romans 5.5. 5. 
Hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How? By the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. See, I can't love God's people. In and of myself, they frustrate the living daylights out of me. Right? And in the flesh, I just get really upset and cranky and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a happy camper. But I can love you. Not in my own strength. But the Holy Ghost has been given so that I can love the brethren. And where the Spirit of God is given his rightful place, you will have an assembly that's filled with love. Because that's what he wants to do. That's how he works. The fruit of the Spirit is, what does it begin with? Love, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. If it's not a loving company of believers, it can be as orthodox, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, and everybody's got the big black Bibles and the right suit and the right outfit and all the rest of it. But if there's no love, what does Paul say about love? If I have not love, what am I? Nothing. What is our assembly without love? Nothing. We talk about New Testament principles. Beloved, what about this one? Love one another as I have loved you. Do you think that's a New Testament principle? That's given lots of emphasis, isn't it? Love is a critical thing. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's love. There's grace. Hebrews 10, 29. People are done despite to the Spirit of grace. And the Spirit of God will emphasize the grace of God. And that's great, isn't it? I lo- Don't you just love grace? It's a wonderful theme. And the Spirit of God is the one that will emphasize that amongst us. But he's also the Spirit of truth. John 16, 13. And he's the Spirit of liberty. Romans eight fifteen. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So we had not received the spirit of bondage, 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Again, great new covenant passages in 2 Corinthians 3. And I'm sorry, you're looking at lots of verses, but it's hard to do a topical study without looking at lots of verses. It says, now the Lord is, the spirit, is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Isn't that good? So all I'm saying is, do we want this person to to dominate us? Do we want our assembly to be a place where the Spirit of God is known, listened to, giving direction, empowering? Is that what we want? That's what we need. I know that. And I believe we we want that badly. And so there's a lot more that we can say about the person of the Holy Spirit. But I want to just kind of finish with, with just a simple thought, really. And that is this that I believe that personally, maybe there'll be some of us in this room that need to get alone with God and acknowledge that we've grieved, quenched, ignored, maybe been scared of, and overly reacted against the Spirit of God. Now, I want to say this. I'm not going to be advocating in this teaching that we should be swinging from the chandeliers, falling, uh, you know, backwards or, you know, lengthening legs or uh, speaking in gobbledygook or anything like that. I'm not going to be emphasizing those things. 
what I am saying is that as I travel amongst the Lord's people, I see a lot of dead orthodoxy. It's orthodox. Oh, yes. You know, we've got it all. Dispensational down to the last kind of duck in the row. It's all there. And New Testament principles, it's all there. But there's a deadness. I go to meetings sometimes and I say to my wife, if, if the Lord was in that place, I knew it not. I don't want to live like that, do you? I, I'd like to go to an assembly where you come away and say, boy, the Lord was in that meeting tonight. His presence was so real. That's why we're talking about revival. That's why I picked this subject, you see, to deal with because I'm going to whet your appetites because you all should be there on Saturday morning. Yeah, because revival is what we need. It's what I need. It's what you need. It's what the world needs. Why do we want revival? Because the world is mocking us. They're saying, where is your God? They see the deadness. They see that we're in decline. They see all this stuff. They think they're on their upper hand. They think that they've won. They think it's all over, that Christianity's a, a dead letter. It's finished. And unless the Lord comes in, maybe they're right. <laughs> no, they're not right. Because our God hasn't changed. He's still a powerful God. And the Spirit of God who so dominated the 28 chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, wants to dominate Acts chapter 29. That's where we live. Right? So hopefully it's wet our appetites to come back on Sunday night and we'll talk about the sensitivity of the Spirit. What does it mean to grieve Him? What does it mean to quench Him? What does it mean to resist Him? And then... Uh, with the help of the Lord, we'll understand what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you have not left us here comfortless. That you sent another comforter just like yourself to uh, abide with us forever. Oh, Father, we're thankful that even though we can grieve the Holy Spirit, you've gone on record and said that we're sealed with that same Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. He's not going to give up on us. We're thankful for that. We certainly would ask if there's anyone in this room, and I know that I have been guilty of it, that for a long time, because of knowing that I'm not charismatic, that I have reacted and ignored this blessed person. I don't want to do that anymore. Lord, I'm asking for personally and for corporately a new sensitivity amongst the saints of God to the Spirit of God. That we all might know what it is to be truly led by the Holy Spirit. It seems in the book of Acts, they knew what that was. They were constantly being led in their movements and directions by the Spirit of God. Father, we want to know afresh what it means to be empowered by the Spirit of God. To be able to preach the gospel with boldness because we're men full of the Holy Ghost. Lord, these are things that we desire. Why do we desire them? We desire them because just like the Holy Spirit wants to magnify the Lord Jesus and make much of him, well, so do we. We would just love to make more of the Lord Jesus in this world that makes so little of him. 
So we pray for your help in these things. Give us good understanding. You said your spirit's been given to help us to uh, understand the truth. Lord, help us to understand, help us to apply, help us to, to be able to do something with what we hear over these three nights together. We'll give thee all the glory in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.